Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning and a chance to, to gather in God's presence. Every Sunday is Resurrection Day, a chance to remember Christ, but Easter is a special time for us to reflect on and to be intentionally reminded of Christ's victory for us over sin and death. Martin Luther King Jr. many years ago in a sermon said that Easter affirms that what stops us does not stop God, does not stop our God. And so we gather in the midst of that truth this morning to thank our God for being the one who acts in ways that we cannot. So let's look at our passage. This is from Luke 24, verse 1 through 12. You can follow along in your order of worship uh, or in your Bible or just, or just listen. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their heads to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've gathered us here. Lord, we come as people desperate to hear from you. Come as those acquainted with the challenges of daily life, come acquainted with the depths of loss and of grief, the power of death. So Lord, we come in anticipation of remembering and hearing about your victory, about the promise of resurrection, the promise that there is something more than ourselves and what we see in this world. We ask that you'd meet us by your Spirit and lift our hearts to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I'd like to do this morning as we look at our passage is to first enter into the, the story, into the narrative that Luke tells us. And after we've entered into the experience of the women and the apostles, for us to make three observations together. Well, you might have noticed our passage opens with a group of women walking in the early dawn toward a tomb. These are the women who have followed Jesus from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem. Days earlier, these are the ones who stood by the cross and watched the one they love die. They watched and they followed those who took down his body. They watched and they saw Jesus' dead body quickly wrapped in linen and set in a tomb. After witnessing such terrible events, the women returned to where they were staying to mourn and to prepare burial spices and ointments for Jesus' body. 
It's important for us to understand the story that they desired right away. They desired deeply to go back immediately and care for Jesus' body. But the crucifixion was on Friday, and the next day was the Jewish Sabbath. So they had to wait through the Sabbath. But on the first day of the week, when the Sabbath was over, at night, at first light, when the dawn was first breaking forth, they walked to the tomb, taking spices that they had prepared. Can you picture that walk? Can you picture the quietness of the morning? I imagine it being a quiet journey, filled with grief, carrying spices with determination. These women are determined to honor the one that they love determined to honor the one who has been dishonored. As we try to understand the experience of these women, maybe we can picture a table. If you can picture in your mind a sturdy table, maybe one that's made out of carved and thick wood, sturdy on which is placed all sorts of precious items. And suddenly one of the legs of this trusted, sturdy table is kicked away. The leg breaks, the table falls, and all the precious items crash to the ground. These women who walk in the silence of dawn have placed the preciousness of their hopes, their fears, their dreams and affections, their purposes upon Jesus. They place their very lives on the one who has been knocked down, the one who is laying in the tomb. That's where our passage begins, but there is another group mentioned in Luke's account. Did you see that here are the apostles, the men called by Jesus, and they are marked by their absence. These men are nowhere to be seen. Also, they're marked by their incomplete number. Jesus called 12 to be his apostles, but here they are referenced as the 11. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus for coins of silver is not with them. Again, we're invited in to see that these men are broken by the death of Jesus. They are broken by betrayal. They have left their homes. They left their work to be followers of Jesus. Now their plans have fallen to the ground. All of them except John had ran, run away or kept their distance through Jesus' arrest and his sentencing, his suffering, in his death, and they gather now not in expectation, but in hiding, filled with fear and anxiety and shame. In the face of trauma, in the face of being out of control, of loss, one group is active, lets us do something in the face of such pain. I don't know how much longer I can keep going, but there are things to do. Jesus' burial needs to be attended to. One group is active, but the other group hides, withdraws, locked within their fears, uncertain of their identities. And in our own experience of loss or of grief, maybe you can relate. Maybe you can relate to finding activity, or maybe you can relate to withdrawing. At the center of these two groups, at the center of Luke's account, is the tomb. Did you notice that? The tomb is central. It's at the middle of the passage. 
But beyond the construction of the passage, the tomb is central. It is the place of encounter between humanity and God, between human limits and divine action. And it's from this center, from the tomb, that I want us to make three observations this morning. Three things to think about. First, the tomb expresses the world's judgment. The tomb expresses the world's judgment. Second, the tomb is the place of God's reversal. God's reversal. And finally, third, the tomb affirms the divine. The divine in the midst of human limitation. On April 15th, on tax day, hopefully you got your taxes turned in, but if you were checking the news or maybe the feeds that you receive on your phone or your computer, you might have seen images of Notre Dame Cathedral on fire, burning. The fire brought great lament and horror all over the world. It was appropriate. It is appropriate. started in 1163 and finished in 1345. The cathedral is an act of great devotion, a profound place of beauty. Maybe you've visited. Maybe you've been there yourself. And it was sad to see images of it burning, but it was also worth noting, though, the human response. Witnesses standing in silence, standing in shock, offering prayers or sorrow, representing or making clear the meaning that this place had to those of faith or the French people or the world all over. I mentioned that. I mentioned those images. I mentioned the response maybe we had or you've seen others have. I mentioned that response as a way of setting a contrast. A contrast. You see, when Jesus died, when he was hung on the cross, there was not wide sideness. It's important for us to make sure we get this right. There was not wide sadness. There were no great donations to make things right. At the cross was his mother, a few women, and one disciple. But otherwise, those who were present, those who watched him walk through the city, or those who watched him die on the cross, received him as he was presented, one needing to be removed. A fool, one we are better off without. The tomb expresses the world's judgment of Jesus. He didn't simply die. He was executed as a rejected, condemned criminal, hung on a Roman cross, meant not just to kill, but to shame and to despise. The tomb in this regard is the expression of the world's most decisive and powerful judgment, the evaluation of a person, the judgment of a life. And if we're honest, historically, we know that this has always been the case. Those who have power, whatever power they have, use execution, use death as a way to declare their evaluations. And here Jesus identified with the little ones, the outside ones. He was executed as one outside of what is valued. I noticed on my phone as I looked at the news this morning that while we were sleeping in Sri Lanka, those who had gathered for Easter services, there was a terrorist acts of bombing in churches there. Hundreds being killed. Hundreds injured. Jesus and his death identified with such as that. Whether it's in daily 
things or whether it's in violent acts. We know what it is to suffer the judgment of others. And we know what it is to witness the silencing or the dismissing of our neighbors. We know it is to witness those who gather in Christ's name not being welcomed. The cross, the first thing we need to think about at Easter is that Jesus identifies with the judged ones, with the condemned ones. That's who Jesus identified with. Jesus makes the powerful around him uncomfortable, makes them feel threatened. He challenges those who would judge, those who would see their livelihood connected to being over another person. The tomb expresses the world's judgment. And the women see it. The women see the place that Jesus has been crushed and silenced. They see the tomb as they walk towards it, but it is not what they expected. It's open, and as they go in, they find that it is empty, and they are perplexed. In their confusion, behold, they see angelic messengers who ask them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He has risen. Here is a question and a statement of reversal. Remember, he told you why in Galilee the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, then rise. Here is a message of contrast. In the hands of humans, Jesus was crucified, but in the hands of God, Jesus has been raised. And the tomb tells us of the world's judgment, but the tomb also proclaims to us the reversal of God. God's reversal in the resurrection of Christ. The world rejected and crushed Jesus, but God raised him to new life and gave him the name above all names. If you're like me, we know that in our hearts or in our culture, we're happy to tell or decide who is worthy and who is not, who should be remembered and who should be forgotten. Who is good and who's not? Who's a person? Maybe who's less than one? We live under evaluation. All of us. How do you look? What's your education? How much money do you make? What about your children? Where do they go to school? How are you happy? Are you able to handle all the things before you? It's part of what it is to be human. Jesus enters into such evaluation. The poet Mary Oliver said that in that context, Jesus' resurrection is like fire for the cold, like a rope let down to the lost. His resurrection is like something as necessary as bread in the pockets of the hungry. Why? Why is Jesus like that? Why is his resurrection so important? Because his resurrection disrupts the judgments of the world. His resurrection, the reversal, this deconstructs the judgment and valuation put upon you. What more could Jesus have done to mock the world that killed him than to rise from the dead? What more could Jesus have done to mock the world that reject him than to rise from the dead? And as we gather on Easter, we proclaim the light of Christ. We proclaim the contrast between the world's values and the values of God. In the resurrection, God is affirming Jesus. This is my son, whom I love, my chosen one, 
listen to him. Do you see that? Jesus is being reversed and set forth now, not as the rejected one, but as the one for us to behold as life. If he has been raised, God is saying, look to him for life and wisdom, the one who is walking the path that is true and will make you fully human. It's the reversal of the tomb, the distinction between God's ways and the world's that Jesus references when he says to us, it is possible to gain the whole world but lose your soul. It's possible to give ourselves the things that are empty and false. It is God's reversal in Jesus that is being referenced when Jesus says, blessed are those who weep now, for you will be comforted. Or when he tells the arrogant crowd ready to stone the adulterous woman, let you Anyone among you who was without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. You see, in God's reversal, there is hope for those who are crushed, hope for those who are abused and dismissed, hope for those who are forgotten. It means conviction, it means the possibility of forgiveness, it means welcome and affirmation of life to the little ones, and it upends and calls into question the judgment and evaluation of the powerful. The tomb is the place of the world's judgment, but it's also the place of God's reversal. My family and I have been watching a Netflix series called My Planet. Maybe some of you watched it. I love nature documentaries, I have to tell you. My children like it sometimes, but I especially like to watch them. But I have to tell you that the episodes are kind of intense. The imagery is beautiful, but there are some intense parts. We watched the second episode the other day, and it was, it was pretty intense. On the ice fields of uh, Antarctica. But there was a part where I have des- described or labeled the battle of cuteness. The battle of cuteness, which was a polar bear cub regarding a baby seal. One of them is seeming to think that he should eat the other one. The other one thinking that maybe it should run away, but neither one moving. I can gladly say that nothing bad happened in that scene. My kids and I were crying to the seal, run away, run away. But I mention that because I was struck by the ice fields of the Arctic. It's hard maybe to picture in your mind, but if you can picture this vast, you know, this field, not of grass, but of just ice with a layer of snow on top of it, as far as you can see, just whiteness. As far as you can see, nothing but the ice and the snow. And if you can hold that in your mind, it's almost like a desert. Then I, I present that image to you as an image that represents sometimes how we can feel in this life. Not one of cuteness, but one of emptiness. I present that image, that landscape, as maybe representing the question that we can have in our hearts. Is there something besides me? Am I alone? Is there anything besides my efforts, my resources? Is there anything besides those around me who mistreat me or who forget me or who disregard me? The ice fields can be a picture of our experience, empty or alone. I mention that because we live in a time that speaks of religion. We live in a time that speaks of spirituality, of having a consciousness or being aware. 
But maybe you've noticed that we live in a time that doesn't speak much about the divine. The divine. We talk about human activity in the ice fields. We talk about humans trying to find meaning in the landscape that we find ourselves in. But we don't talk a great deal about the divine. The reality of God apart from human activity. A reality of something apart from human resources or human power. And in the tomb, not only do we encounter the judgment of the world and God's reversal, but it's in the tomb, in the place of human limitation, the place that we can barely look into because we know its depths. It is here we see divine action. In the silence of the tomb, in the face of death, in the place of death, God acts. In the resurrection, the divine breaks into human life. God does what only God can do, reminding us that we are not alone and that the field of ice before us is not all that there is. See, in the resurrection, this is crucially important. We encounter, we have the chance for us to meditate and encounter more than the pattern of human behavior, more than human artifacts. This is an action not conjured up by human hopes or human power or human fear, but rather it's conjured up, given, it's presented as fact. It is a reality prior to and independent of and even in challenge of humankind. The resurrection is announced as a fact not dependent upon the women coming to the tomb, not dependent upon the apostles hiding, not dependent upon you and me. It's a divine act in our behalf, and it not only benefited Christ, right, the one who died and rises from the dead, but the Christian faith, the faith of Easter, proclaims that this action, this divine act, benefited Christ, but benefits all those who are united to him by faith. This is the wonder. We have to get both parts right. The Easter is about Jesus rising from the dead, but it also proclaims that all of those who are united to Christ benefit from his death and resurrection. He's entered into our brokenness and brought life to us. Artists have wrestled with how to represent this, how to grasp the goodness of God acting for us in Christ. One Celtic legend, one Celtic folk tale says that bees, bees were created from the tears that of Jesus shed on the cross. Not one fell to the ground, but they all became winged creatures which flew away with the Savior's blessing to spread sweetness and life. In Eastern Orthodox art, Jesus, the resurrected one, is never by himself. Rather, in these paintings, Jesus is always depicted as taking the dead by the hand and pulling them out of the tomb with him. These artistic images of bees, these pollinators spreading life, or the hands being held, lifted out of brokenness and death, these invite us to think about what Jesus does. And we can come back to the song that Scripture invites us to sing. He is risen. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, we gather as the first fruits of Jesus' ministry, of his kingdom. It is the starting point. It is the proclamation of something beyond us, beyond our abilities, beyond our resources, something strange and wonderful. And so out of the tomb comes this news 
In the face of human sin and human death and human limits, God has acted in Christ. The women holding the burial spices in their hands hear this proclamation, and they remember, and they go. Set off for the apostles, the hiding ones, with burial spices in their hands, they set off to tell the good news, Jesus is alive. With burial spices in their hands, but words of life on their lips, they are the first messages of the resurrection. The apostles hear them and dismiss them as crazy, as women telling an idle tale. But Luke tells us that Peter took off running for the tomb and looking inside, sees the linen cloth, the burial cloth, and he marvels. In the tomb, the tomb and the place of human limitation is the place of divine action for you. Jesus, because of his great love for you, chose to take on the linens of death. Can you picture this? In the tomb, the linens of death laying there, Jesus wore those for us. He takes on the linens of human judgment, of rejection, of shame, of death. He puts them on. As he was slandered and rejected, he bears our grief. As he was dragging the heavy cross to the Jerusalem, he was carrying our sin. And as he was nailed to the tree, he was bound to your trespasses. And when he was taken down and wrapped in these burial cloth, he was submitting to your death and to mine. But the tomb, the empty tomb, proclaims God's action. Such things could not hold him. Such wrappings could not hold him. He entered the tomb judged and despised, the tattered and crushed one, but walked out the risen, glorious Lord, who was with and brings with him all the forgotten and little ones. This reversal, this reversal of God and the resurrection of Christ is God's action for you. And it proclaims that sin and evil and death, the mistreatment from others, these are not the greatest forces in your life. They are no longer the final word in your life. If you are in Christ, they can no longer hold you For God has spoken in Jesus, and his word cannot be broken. This is the promise of Easter. The things that stop us do not stop God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the good news of Christ, the one who entered into our sorrows and death to bring life and hope to us. Give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.